let's begin looking at the book of Habakkuk. Now, we've been getting ready to start this for a number of weeks now, and I imagine the questions have come up. Uh, first of all, Habakkuk, is that a book in the Bible? Yes, indeed it is. It's near the end of the Old Testament in the section called the Minor Prophets. They're minor in size, not in importance. So if you have a pew Bible, then you're going to be looking at page 785. Habakkuk only covers two or three pages in most Bibles. Second question I think that should come up is, why Habakkuk? I mean, we've got a couple of weeks while, while Brett is on paternity. Um, thank the Lord that he gets the opportunity to help his wife in this situation. But why not take two or three weeks to cover Titus, to cover something from the book of Acts? Why look at this little book that most people don't even know exists from a couple thousand years ago in a completely different culture? Well, let me tell you about a couple of people I've met over the last few weeks. First of all, there's a lady we'll call Miss C. She lives in the townhomes just across the street from the church over here. Miss C, when, when we knocked on her door, identified herself as a Southern Baptist, which brought joy to our hearts. And so we asked her, well, Miss C, where do you go to church? She said, well, actually, I haven't been to church in years. Well, why is that? So she started to explain. A number of years ago, uh, her husband got very sick. And so out of the deep faith in her heart, she started to pray and beg the Lord to save her husband. Her husband died. Next came, I think it was her father, then mother, then other people she knew and she loved, and she would pray for them, and they would die, and finally, she got cancer. She said, I learned my lesson. You don't take these things to the Lord because then people end up dying. Second person, Marta Shea and I talked with him at the park a couple weeks back. Young man, but an ex-con. He's got kids in a couple different houses. And he so wanted to start anew. So we started to talk to him about faith in Christ, a new start in your life. And he said, wait just a second, I've been in churches. And I've watched how some of the most faithful people, people that know and love God, have tragedy after tragedy happen in their lives. And if that's what faith does for you, well, no, thank you. And I could go on and on. Just yesterday, I, I shared with a woman. Two days ago, Gary and I shared with a couple. And over and over again, we see these questions. Where is God when I'm suffering. But we don't need to look out there, do we? We can look right inside our own church. I know that many of you have had loved ones tragically die, whether by accident or by disease. You've had children that have gone off the deep end. Many of you struggle with chronic pain or diseases that just will not go away. And it's not that you haven't cried out to God. You just haven't received the answer that you've wanted. So the question cries out at us. Where is God at these moments? And what are we supposed to do 
when God seems absent? Well, that's exactly the question of Habakkuk. Let me, before we jump into the the passage, share with you the historical context of this prophet. I think that often we don't read the minor prophets or we get confused when we do read them because it just seems like a random series of woe to these people and judgment upon these others. But when we know the history behind it, it all makes sense. Well, Habakkuk lived and ministered near the end of the 600s BC, right at the end of the kingdom of Judah. If you recall your Old Testament history, God's people, the Jews, separated after Solomon's time into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom quickly just went downhill, running further and further away from God, closer and closer to idols, until eventually, in the year 722, the Assyrians swept in, conquered, and the northern kingdom was to be seen no more. Well, the southern kingdom was a little bit better this kingdom of Judah. And time after time, there would be good kings that would rise up, but the overall trend was downhill until it reached its apex at the time of a king named Manasseh. This man was evil. He set up idols. He chased after them. He murdered. He oppressed. And what's worse, he reigned for 55 years years. And by the end of this time, you just got the sense, if God is a God of justice, he must break in and judge this nation, just as he has done with the northern kingdom. But God acted in a different way. He raised up Manasseh's grandson, the king Josiah. Josiah happens to be the name of my youngest And if you want your kids to pay attention in a sermon, say their name, Josiah. There he's looking. King Josiah came to the throne at eight years old. But from the beginning, his heart was not turned towards the idols of his grandfather or his father, but turned towards Yahweh, the living God, the God of the Bible. And he began this series of reforms as soon as he was He was old enough to truly take power. They started chasing out the false prophets, tearing down the idols, and restoring the temple. And one day as they were doing that, they came across some strange book buried deep in a corner of an old room. They blew the dust off of it and discovered this was the Pentateuch. This was the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of God. Things had gotten so bad that they didn't even know where the Bible was. But they rediscovered it, and they started to read it. And their hearts broke within them because they realized everything that this book forbids, they were doing. And everything that it commands, they were not doing. They declared a fast. They cried out to God and they began to do everything in their power to make sure that the people of God were lined up with the will of God. And suddenly, there was this bright, shining hope in Judah. Josiah was still a young king. He had all of his future ahead of him. And now, all of a sudden, the people are seeking God. They start to wonder, is this the time 
when all of the promises of God are going to come true in this kingdom, when the Gentile, the the foreign nations are going to come and are going to look and are going to say, look how great God is. Look how he's blessed his people. And then, in an instant, it was snatched away. Josiah foolishly went out to battle and was killed. His son Jehoiakim takes the throne, and Jehoiakim is as bad as they come. So suddenly they're plunged from the heights of hope to the depths of despair. Suddenly these people that had looked and seen God's law shining forth, all they see is injustice. And that is where Habakkuk steps forward. Read with me now. Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll read from verses 1 through 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder And be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. In the introduction, in verse 1, we see all of the biography of Habakkuk that we know. Habakkuk, the prophet. We don't even know what his name means. All we know is that he's a prophet. His his name is only mentioned here and then in chapter 3, verse 1. All of this is to tell us that who Habakkuk was is not important. We don't need to know it. What is important is this revelation that we see contained in this book. For what we see right here is a very unique conversation between one prophet and his God. Habakkuk in this book will twice lodge criticisms, complaints against the way that God is managing his universe. And God answers him. 
And as they're having this interaction, God draws him along and changes him so that in in chapter 3, what Gary read at the beginning of, of the service this morning, he launches forth in a psalm of praise. Well, Habakkuk, the prophet, has an oracle. In some of your translations, you might read burden. Both of these uh, words would be correct. It has this dual meaning. A burden, something that is heavy to bear. An oracle, a message that is weighty and, quite frankly, not pleasant to hear. Habakkuk is receiving from God a very harsh word. What's more, we see at the end of verse 1, Habakkuk is not just receiving some scroll from heaven. He's not just hearing the words of God. Look, it says, this is the oracle that he saw. This is a vision that was given for him. So you'll understand why Habakkuk is in such horror as we go on. Now, as we come to verses 2 through 4, we see Habakkuk's first complaint. After living through the times of Josiah, where he saw this king, godly leader, putting forth all of his effort and his might to see that the law of God is obeyed. Now look at verse 3. He looks forth. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Instead of the peace, instead of the unity that they had as they pursued after the will of God above. Now God's own people are divided among themselves, fighting. There's murder in the streets. Verse 4, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The prophet Jeremiah is a contemporary of Habakkuk's. And he brings charges against King Jehoiakim and the rest of the leaders of Judah at this time, saying that they are murderers, that they are oppressors, that they are violent men with blood on their hands. And so we see the law is paralyzed. God's truth does not go forth. Instead, the king and all of the people who are in power are seeing to it that wickedness rules the day. And in fact, the wicked surround the righteous. So justice is perverted. If anyone dares stand up for the truth, They are surrounded by those more powerful than them. They are shouted down and worse. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because at this time as he stood up to proclaim the truth of God to this wicked nation, he was beaten, he was thrown into pits, he was starved, all for daring to speak the truth. Can you imagine the torture in the soul of this man Habakkuk. A godly man who loves the word of the Lord, who has seen the heights where God's people are seeking after him. And now he looks everywhere and all he can see is sin and injustice. And his heart is cut to the core. I was quite convicted this week as I read over these verses again and again. Because as I look out at our world, as I read the news, as I, 
as I talk with people in the neighborhood, and I hear story after story of brokenness and injustice, as we read about how Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria is having victory after victory, as we hear about triple homicides here in Fort Worth, it's so easy for our hearts to be calloused. My heart is calloused. The word of God is trampled underfoot. People don't care. It seems like justice is perverted. Oh, how we need the spirit of God to come and tear away our calluses, to give us feeling again, to give us a sense of horror for all of the destruction that we see around us. Well, Habakkuk was anything but calloused. He sees this evil that is done all around him. And so he cries out to the Lord, Save us, O God! And nothing seems to happen. He cries out again and again, Lord, come! Lord, enact your justice! We don't know how long he was crying out, but God seems silent. God seems absent. And at these points, it can be so easy for us to just turn away, to just try and solve things on our own, or to just become hardened to it all. But look at what Habakkuk does here. He leans in more heavily to God. He cries out, Oh Lord, how long? Oh, Lord, why? These are what I call the the two questions of the sufferer. How long and why? Here he calls out in verse 2. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Then why, in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? I've got to admit that when I first read over these words, I thought, how absurd. This little puny creature is coming before the almighty king, and he's saying, God, how long are you going to do this? Why are you doing this? What impudence. But the strange thing is, God seems to welcome this kind of talk from his people. Look throughout the entirety of the Bible and you will see similar words. Look through the Psalms. Psalm 13, 1 and 2, for example. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Or the famous Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You could go on and on from there. Psalm 80, Psalm 88. You could look through the book of Job, and Job will cry this out again and again. You could look through the rest of the prophets. Then look in the New Testament, and you come 
the book of Revelation, near the very end, from the very throne room of God himself, the martyrs who are beneath the throne of God cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And of course, Jesus himself, as he hung on the cross, cried out with the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God welcomes this kind of questioning. He's big enough to take our questions. And even more so, friends, we know that when we are suffering... When, when we look around and we think that things aren't going the way that they should, these questions arise in our hearts, do they not? We call out, God, how long until you save? Why are you doing this? So for us to turn away, for us to keep silent, for us to try to solve these problems on our own, this is an act of great disbelief. No, to turn to God with these questions, that is an act of faith. Because by asking God these questions, we are showing that we assume that he is in control. We assume that he is good. We assume that he is able to change our situation. So when Habakkuk says, how long? He is saying, God, I know that you have set a time to change things. When Habakkuk says, why? He is saying that, God, I know you have a purpose in all of this. And indeed, my friends, regardless of what you are going through, know this, God is in control. He does have a time. He does have a purpose. And so that means that we can come to him and we can lay bare our hearts before him. How do you respond when God seems absent? Do you just hold back? Do you pull away from him? Thinking, well, he's not answering. What's the point in asking anyway? Maybe you try to solve the problem on your own, by your own means, in your own time. Maybe you just try and Escape from all of it by deadening yourself with entertainment. Maybe your response is the one that I typically choose for myself. The thinking in my head goes something like this. I'm not getting what I deserve. God's not responding. So I'm going to just allow myself a couple of those sinful pleasures that I normally kind of resist because now I deserve it. What is your response? Do you pull back or do you lean in more deeply to the only one who can answer your questions? Do you come to God and lay bare your heart with all of the rawness, with all of its pain? God welcomes it. He knows it's there anyway. And so when we pull back, we're pulling back from the only source of comfort 
and from the only source of peace that we have. As the great hymn says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I can't promise you that as you cry out to God, how long, as you cry out to him, why, that he's just going to send you a little written message that says, two more hours and give you the reason. What I can promise you is that he will comfort you. That he will give you his peace. Jesus has promised it. In this world, you will have trouble, but I give you my peace. So now as we move on, verses 5 through 11, we see something remarkable. I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees here. Habakkuk, this one little creature, has cried out to God with these questions, with this complaint. And God answers. This is one of those incredible but forgotten truths of the Bible. We call out to God and God answers us. God doesn't owe him an answer. There's no reason that the Almighty should stoop to speaking to such a creature. But what we see throughout all of the scriptures is that God loves to answer us as we call out to him. He is transcendent. He is above everything that we can know and understand. He rules the nations. And to them, or to us, we're like like grains of sand. Uh, I'm sorry. To God, we are like grains of sand in his hands. And yet he is also so intimate. That when we come to him with our misunderstandings, he is happy to answer us. Don't miss this, my friends. Our God is like no other. He is not some dumb, silent idol. When we call, he responds. And look at how he responds here. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astonished. He starts out by giving commands, not just to Habakkuk, but to the entire people of God. These commands are in the plural form in the original Hebrew. This is a command to all of God's people and to us as well. And what is the command? Watch me. And then after you watch me, praise me. Be amazed by me. Wonder at my glory and my strength. Again, this is how our God is like none other. His command to us, his greatest command to us is watch as I work and then be filled with praise. All throughout the scriptures, we see that this is true. The book of Exodus, as God's people are fleeing from Egypt and they're trapped by the Red Sea and they don't know what to do. Egypt is advancing and they're thinking, do we turn back? Do we just surrender? God says, watch. I'm going to do it all. He gets them through. He destroys Pharaoh's army. And what is their response on the other side? 
Worship like you've never seen it before. Think forward. Think to the cross of Jesus Christ. God himself takes on flesh, comes down to this earth, and he says, watch. I will do everything that you need for joy, for life eternal. And he suffers and dies on the cross, rises again. And now all we need to do is look upon his sufficient sacrifice, trust in him, and wonder. That's what God is calling his people to here. Habakkuk, watch me work, then worship. But what God is doing here is not something as pleasant and joyful as the Exodus. It's not something that is as wonderful as the cross. This is a message of judgment. God says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Well, what's so unbelievable, God? What is it that you are not, uh, that we would not believe if you told us? God says in verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Now, this message was unbelievable on a number of levels for the, the Jewish people. First of all, it's unbelievable that God is using the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. It's unbelievable because the Babylonians weren't some great and mighty nation at this point. They had just escaped over a hundred years of, of Assyrian rule, dominance over them. They were a rising player on the international scene, but they were still far off. Everybody thought that Egypt was going to be the next great power. But God says, wait. You may think that they are far off, but I am raising them up. Verse 6, he says, they march through the breadth of the earth. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards. Their horsemen come from afar and fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They're far off now, but God will bring them close. But even more, it's unbelievable that God is using the Babylonians because the Babylonians are so wicked. We see in verse 9, they all come for violence. Verse 6, they're a bitter and hasty nation. Verse 7, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They are their own standard of right. And then finally, verse 11, they are guilty men whose own might is their God. They worship themselves. God, how can you use this nation? It's unbelievable that God would use Babylon. But secondly, it's unbelievable that God is using Babylon to judge Judah. Judah is God's own people, God's chosen people. How can he judge them? Indeed, there have been a number of warnings coming to God's people that judgment is imminent, but they've refused to believe it. You know, after all, Jerusalem is the place where the temple is. That's like God's house. That's where his glory resides. There's no way that he would let Jerusalem be conquered. That's exactly what God is promising here. In verse 6, he says that the Babylonians are coming to seize dwellings, not their own. 
To the Jewish hearer, this would spur on some memories, some things that they had heard earlier in the Old Testament. Seized dwellings, not their own. All throughout Deuteronomy and, and other books of the Pentateuch, God is promising that when Judah comes to take this land that they now live in, they will seize cities and dwellings that are not their own. They will live in cities that their hands have not built. God promised this people, these, these lands will be yours. And now he's promising that he will take them away and give them to another. Then we look down. Verse 9, the Babylonians will gather captives like sand. This too would jar their memory because places like Genesis twenty-two seventeen, Abraham is promised that he will have descendants like the grains of sand on the beach. Judah is the fulfillment of that promise. And yet now God is saying that this very sand is going to be snatched away. God is going to bring in the, the Babylonians to judge them. Many will be slaughtered and the rest will be carried off into exile. Oh, it's unbelievable that God would judge his own. But thirdly, it's unbelievable that God is using Babylon to judge Judah now. Don't turn there, but if you look back in Isaiah chapter 39, you'll see an earlier prophecy. God has promised that Babylon will carry away all of the treasures of the king's palace and all of the treasures of the temple. But the promise was for a time further off. And time and time again, the prophets have come and said, God's judgment is coming, God's judgment is coming. But the people refused to believe, thinking, ah, that'll never happen in my lifetime. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Time after time again, I've heard, if there's a judgment coming, it's not coming in my lifetime. God would never do that. It seems that not only in Old Testament times, the imminence of judgment is hard to believe. But God promises his people here, I am doing a work in your days. They would see it. Finally, this is a message that's hard to believe because it's God himself doing it. Yes, the Babylonians would be the ones who would race in to Judah. They would slaughter many. They would carry people away. They would commit atrocities unknown to that land beforehand. And yet, there is no mistaking. This is God's hand at work. Verse 5, I am doing a work. Verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is, at one and the same time, a comforting and a frightening thought. Even through the injustices of man, even through the sin that is committed against us and by us, God is accomplishing his purpose. And of course, there's no greater example of this than the cross, right? Judas, Pontius Pilate, the Romans and the Jewish leaders all conspired together to put Jesus to death. They are guilty for their crimes. 
They will pay. They are accountable. And yet, all of that goes to accomplish the plan of God that was established for all eternity. So, friends, we can know that as we're suffering, and unfortunately as we're causing suffering, we're still accomplishing the plan of God. And yet each of us is accountable for our actions. There's no escaping here that God is a God of judgment. God is bringing a fierce and harsh judgment upon his people. Paul will quote from Habakkuk 1.5 later on in Acts 13.41. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. But whereas Habakkuk was foretelling the judgment that was going to come upon God's people for refusing to believe Moses and the prophets, Paul was foretelling the far greater judgment that would come upon all who refused to believe Jesus, who is more than just a prophet. He is the final and the fullness of the revelation of God. If you think that it's bad what happens to God's people here for refusing to believe Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses and the others, you cannot believe what is in store for those who reject Jesus the far greater prophet who not just told us the word of God, who was the very word of God. There's a fiery, eternal judgment that awaits all who reject that revelation. So friends, not only must we flee that judgment, but we must warn others I so wish that I could end this sermon this morning with a nice Hollywood happy ending. You know, one of those stories where somebody followed three points in the midst of suffering in their life, and then everything got better, and all was done for. But I can't offer you that. The scripture doesn't offer you that. In this world, you will have trouble. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And so that pain that you're wrestling with, it may remain. That injustice at work, it might not go anywhere. The suffering that you see all around you, it may just last for a while. So what can I offer? Like Habakkuk, turn and cry out to God. Don't don't come with some false veneer of piety and say, well, Lord, everything's all right. I just praise you. It's all good. Cry out to him with the questions, with the pain that is in your heart. He can handle it. And as you call forth to him, he will comfort you. 
But even more so, my friends, what I can hold out to you is the glorious truth that Habakkuk couldn't see in his day. Because we look at our suffering from this side of the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Because we know that God is not passive or inactive when it comes to sin and suffering. Every cry of the people of God stirs the compassionate heart of the Father. Every sin that we have committed, every sin that has been committed against us, and every fruit of sin that we have felt in our pain-wracked bodies stirs up wrath within the holy heart of God. And at the fullness of time, he himself, his son, came down, became man, stood, was nailed to the cross, and the Father poured out on him every bit of that wrath as Jesus suffered and he died. But then he rose again from the dead, showing that that wrath was satisfied. And he ascended up into heaven, where now he is interceding for you and for me. How much does God hate the suffering that we are going through? So much so that he bore it on a cross. But it gets even better than that, my friends. Because one day, Jesus will come again to reign as king and to put an end to all of this injustice that we see before us. So with every bit of suffering that we feel right now, let that remind us that Jesus will come and end it. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then God himself will wipe every last tear from your eye. So now, as we cry out, how long? As we cry out, why, O Lord? Let it also be a reminder to us that God is patient. Not wanting for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. And if we cry out, how long? And he doesn't rend the heavens and come down and save immediately? That means that it is still the time of his grace. That means that there are still those out there that he wishes to save from that fiery wrath that is to come. Aren't you glad that 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, he didn't hear somebody's call to to save and respond at that moment and come down and put an end to it all? 20 years ago, had one of you cried out for salvation from suffering and God responded by ending it at that moment, I would have been condemned to hell. How long ago was it for you? Aren't you glad that our God is a God of infinite grace and that he doesn't respond to every one of the cries of his people immediately So now, as we cry out, how long? As we cry out, why, O Lord? Remember that there are those out there who are still under the judgment of God. Remember that there are still those who need to be saved from that judgment. 
cry out to God and cry out to your tormentors that they may be saved from his wrath. Finally, friend, if you are in here today and you have not trusted in Jesus, do not walk out of here still under the wrath of God. The judgment that we have talked about is very real, and you deserve it, just like I do, just like everyone in here deserves it. God will pay back for every sin committed, whether that be on the cross of Jesus or whether that be in your eternal suffering. After the service, come forward. Talk with me. Talk with Dale. Talk with Brett or or someone else. Let us explain to you how you can flee from the wrath that is to come. Will you pray with me, my friends? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not absent. Thank you that you are not silent, that you have spoken and you will speak again soon. God, we do pray for those of us who are undergoing suffering and trial. Let us be honest with you. Let us cry out to you with everything that is within us. But we likewise thank you, Lord, that you are a God of grace, that you have given time to so many to respond and to flee from the wrath that is to come. We pray, Lord, for any in here who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that even today they would be freed from wrath and brought into the comfort of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.